Could the Republican power play in Tennessee happen in Georgia? Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia, I am back in my car after a whirlwind trip to Chicago to cover the Windy City's victory of DNC. We're not going to talk about that too much today, uh, but needless to say, Chicago officials were pointing to their pro-union stance, to the Midwest Blue Wall, uh, to all the political and cultural advantages and economic advantages of Chicago, and not to the fact uh, that Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has essentially uh, promised to float the whole thing financially, which is something that uh, Atlanta officials have said was the biggest single factor in Illinois and in Chicago winning this over the city of Atlanta. Greg, I feel like your trip to Chicago was sort of the opposite of a victory lap, whatever that is, a defeat lap <laughs> to, <laughs> to Chicago. But I have to say, whenever I go to Chicago, I am so struck by how gorgeous it is, how much there is to do. And when you were in Chicago, were you a little bit thinking, yeah, I could see a convention here? Oh, I was. And, you know, to your first point uh, about, you know, the opposite of a victory lap, one of the texts I got from one of our listeners was, what you did today would have been tantamount to me covering the Alabama 2017 National Championship trophy ceremony for you, <laughs> knowing that I'm a huge Bulldog fan. So he, uh, I, I feel like it was some of that, but we had to, you know, our editors wanted to kind of close the loop and, and get more details about why Atlanta lost this bid. But you're right, Patricia, when you're walking around, perfect weather. I mean, not a cloud in the sky. It was 70s. 70 degree um, temperatures with a light breeze blowing over the lake. I ran three different times in my two days there. It was such great weather uh, that the actual press conference was held at the Shedd Aquarium, which is, I mean, has this majestic view of Chicago's skyline. Again, like perfect weather. No one can promise that sort of weather next August, but man, you could you could really see why uh, Joe Biden and National Democratic officials lean towards Chicago after just one visit there. Nothing against Atlanta, but wow. Yes. Atlanta, you're great too, but Chicago won this time around. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that Jamie Harrison did say in response to one of my questions, the DNC chair, um, was that, hey, if we could have given this out 2028 as well, 2032, Atlanta would have been a, a sure thing, but that's not how it works. <laughs> the next Promise. president. Promises, promises, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, that's a different story for a different day. Well, on today's episode... We're going to focus on what happened in Tennessee and whether that could happen in Georgia as well, and also talk about the backlash against the moderate Democrat who voted for school voucher legislation. We're going to answer your questions for the listener mailbag. We're going to have our who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hey there, I'm Stephen Schumacher, president of Only in Cartersville, Bartow. Need a break from election season? Escape the hustle and bustle in Cartersville, Georgia, where you can start your day with a rejuvenating hike at Red Top Mountain State Park and wind down at Timberline Glamping's newest location, Pine Acres on Lake Alatoona. Looking for more fun by the water? Check out Terminus Wake Park or grab a kayak and paddle down the Etowah River. And don't forget to mark your calendars now for Barbecue and Brews Fest in downtown Cartersville on April 20th. Unwind where relaxation meets adventure and create memories that can be made only in Cartersville, Bartow. You know, Patricia, I know both of us have been getting a lot of texts and phone calls after what happened in 
in Tennessee last week. And for a recap, about a week ago, two black Democratic state representatives were ousted from the Tennessee House after a gun control protest on the chamber's floor. They were abruptly expelled. It was just the third time that that sort of punishment has been used in the Tennessee State House since the Civil War era. Republicans said they were angered by the disruption of the protest and what they called a disregard for House rules. So they quickly moved to remove the two lawmakers. An effort to remove a third lawmaker, a white Democrat from Knoxville, failed. And what we've seen since then is basically a backfire. <laughs> Local officials in both Memphis and Nashville have voted to return those two representatives to the legislature. One of them came back, before, hadn't even missed a vote. They've also become national icons. And it's given Tennessee Democrats who were relegated to the sidelines, has given them new traction and a lot more attention. Absolutely. And whatever Tennessee Republicans were hoping to do, hoping to sideline those two freshmen, um, the exact opposite happens. They put a huge microphone, national spotlight on both of these two young men who were both really ready for it. These are two young men who have been working as community organizers, deeply studied in John Lewis's uh, rhetoric and policies, obviously Dr. King's, you, they really feel like the next generation of people fighting for civil liberties, for freedoms, for equality, for civil justice. And uh, it just totally backfired. Um, now, Republicans still have a supermajority in the Tennessee House. They're going to continue to either loosen gun laws or uh, block any kinds of restrictions. But it was interesting that uh, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee moved to sign an executive order to, at the very least, try and keep guns out of the hands of people who are mentally ill. There are already some laws like that in Tennessee. He's working to strengthen them. But he knew he didn't have the votes in the moment. And so it's something that he needed to do through executive order. Um, but in terms of whether something like that could happen here in Georgia, could either of the two chambers oust their members? Yes, they could. Actually, very similar yeah. rules. By a vote of two-thirds, either the state house or the state senate can oust any of their members. But they, the Republicans certainly don't have the votes. They don't have that kind of supermajority. And you just don't get the sense, especially in the House, that, um, that that Republican majority would try to use that. It's just not been that kind of chamber, especially not to ask somebody during a debate over something as heated and sensitive as gun control. So it doesn't, I, nothing like that. I can't think what happened here in Georgia. But ironically, the gun laws in Georgia are stricter than in Tennessee. So it's, um, you know, there are a lot of layers to unpack with what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And there's a provision in Georgia code and, and the Georgia rules of the, the chambers where, you know, it could be referred to the House Ethics Committee. But essentially, could it happen in Georgia? Yes. Would it happen? It depends on leadership. Um, right now, with the, with the leaders in the state Senate and the state House, it's very hard to see something like that happen. Has it happened before? Yeah. I mean, in, in modern Georgia history, probably the most famous case was in 1965, after Julian Bond uh, won a seat in the state legislature, he, is, he was an outspoken opponent of the Vietnam War. And so three times voters in his district elected him as the representative, only to have lawmakers ignore their wishes. 
So he was never, he was not seated. It took a 1966 Supreme Court ruling to decide that the actions of the Georgia House were unconstitutional. And he was finally sworn in in 1967 and served until 1974. So, you know, Georgia has had a situation, certainly not along the same lines, but at least of a duly elected member of the Georgia General Assembly not being seated because of his opposition to a national debate. Um, and th- in this case, it was over the Vietnam War. Now, more recently, there's been two episodes that have gotten a lot of attention. The first is the arrest of Park Cannon, who was knocking on the door outside Governor Brian Kemp's office as he was signing in very controversial election laws. There was never any formal move to oust her from the state legislature or, or take any other severe disciplinary action, but it got a lot of attention. The second one didn't get as much attention, but when I was calling around and asking state Republican leaders, you know, if there are any parallels whatsoever that this reminded them of, this was the episode that came up. It was involving, I think it was in, it was 2019, 2020. It involved um, state representative Renita Shannon, who was speaking against the anti-abortion legislation that passed the chamber shortly after Governor Brian Kemp's election. And her time had expired. And speak, then Speaker David Ralston was, was asking her to, to leave the podium, and she wouldn't. And so her mic was cut off. And after a little bit of a... Um, she kept on speaking. No one could hear her because her mic was cut off. And after a huddle, fellow Democrats kind of helped kind of usher her along, if I remember this correctly. And again didn't come close to any sort of formal expulsion or anything like that. But that was the closest, very recent incident that anyone can really remember of tempers really flaring to that point where she could have faced a more severe reprimand. Yeah, it really feels like the Park Cannon arrest is the closest um, example, kind of the nearest comparison, because in the way that the Tennessee event really sparked this huge national backlash. The exact same thing happened in Georgia because on the other side of the door that Park Cannon was knocking on to get into the governor's office was the governor and the Republican leadership of the House, Republican leadership of the Senate, signing that bill um, to overhaul Georgia's voting laws. They were doing it underneath a painting of a plantation Uh, Once that picture was published, that went viral. Um, Of course, everybody uh, signing that bill and standing next to the governor were all white men. And it just created this unbelievably ugly portrait of Georgia politics of this young black woman outside trying to have her voice heard. And inside were the governor and all of the leaders um, signing this bill essentially behind a closed locked door that it was being guarded by state troopers. It was just... Yeah, not essentially. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. yeah. Th- yes, that is exactly what happened. And uh, it just spiraled into a major national story, as it should, because it was the type of thing where had anyone in, in Georgia thought through how this was going to be perceived, how it was going to play out, how it was going to work in the long run in favor of Democrats who are saying our voices are not being heard. We are being 
not only ignored, but silenced. And that is exactly what happened in Tennessee as well. So in both of those cases, those young lawmakers have gotten national attention. The issue has gotten national attention. But again, the Republicans still have the votes. And so as long as they have the votes, as long as they have the power to pass these laws, Uh, that they want to be passing and not pass the laws that they don't want to pass. That's the ultimate test. But in terms of just sheer optics, a very low moment for Georgia Republicans in that case and for Tennessee Republicans in this case as well. Yeah. And and another difference between Park Cannon and what happened in Tennessee, of course, is that, yes, she got arrested. District Attorney Fonnie Willis declined to prosecute her, by the way, uh, but she did get arrested. But there was no formal move in the Georgia House to severely reprimand her um, or to expel her from the House. Could it have passed? You know, who? I mean, they didn't have the two-thirds vote. Uh, then it wouldn't have passed. And if had Republicans had a supermajority, who knows? But I, I can't. I also can't see Speaker Ralston at the time and other Republicans wanting to pick that fight. Oh no! And if you talked to Republicans then, as we did the next day, they would have undone that moment. They would have done anything to have it play out differently. They knew that that was a mistake. Now, they didn't want to change the law that they were signing. They didn't want to change the underlying policy that Park Cannon and other Democrats were demonstrating against. But they knew um, at the very least that that was not the right way to treat a member of the House and certainly not the right way to be messaging in this moment when you think you're doing uh, what your constituents want you to do. Exactly. And and there have been other arrests at the state capitol. Nakima Williams, when she was the state senator, was also arrested uh, for her part in a peaceful demonstration, state capitol lobby. And one of the first times I met Raphael Warnock was when he was arrested. He, of course, wasn't a lawmaker then, nor was he a U.S. senator, but he was arrested, I think it was back in 2014, as part of a protest against Governor then-Governor Nathan Deal's decision not to expand Medicaid. So I think, Patricia, long story short, when it comes to could this happen in Georgia, it could, you know, it, ha- it would take extraordinary circumstances because it would take that two thirds vote, but it also would take a, an extraordinary move by Republicans. It would have to be something that truly galvanizes Republicans because, again, I can't see Georgia leaders wanting to pick that fight. Yeah, I'll add one other thing about just the tone and the tenor, especially on the House side and how different it is from what's happening in Tennessee. When Justin Pearson was sworn in to the legislature earlier this year, he was wearing a traditional African garment, which is uh, typical of a formal setting in Africa. It was something he chose to do. He was reprimanded on the floor of the Tennessee House for wearing that. And one of his colleagues uh, went into great detail about why that was unprofessional, why he was disrespecting the House, why uh, he should work to do better than that. Hugely insulting to Justin Pearson. If you contrast that to what happened in the Georgia House and Senate earlier this year, there are, it's the most diverse class that we've ever seen in the Georgia General Assembly. And a number of lawmakers were wearing traditional garments when they were sworn in to the state house and state Senate earlier this year. And Representative Ramon is the first lawmaker in Georgia ever to wear a head covering as a Muslim woman. And she said that she had worried initially coming into the legislature, would this be a problem um, to be wearing it? Would she, would it be against house rules? Because typically house 
the sort of tradition is not to wear head coverings. Um, would that be okay? Would would she be called out? Would she be ostracized or made to feel like she shouldn't be doing it? And uh, Maya, probably our colleague, had this really insightful article following up with a lot of those lawmakers because she knew it was the most diverse class, following up with them and saying, how did your first year go? And they all said pretty much to a point, there were sure there were some moments of awkwardness. You know, you have a lot of members of the Georgia legislature who from rural areas simply not familiar with traditional dress of, of Vietnam or uh, of um, other parts of the world, uh, certainly not uh, used to women wearing head coverings. And so uh, it there were sort of awkward moments, but moments of conversation and inquiry and curiosity. But Representative Ramon said it was really largely positive and it ended up being a conversation piece rather than anything that she was ever made to feel awkward or bad about. And she said she really credited the House leadership for setting that tone. So in that way, the tone down there has just been very, very different than what we saw in Tennessee. Um, but again, the politics, kind of the hardcore politics of the laws that are being passed, Georgia's gun laws are, in fact, a bit more restrictive than those in Tennessee. And um, even though the majorities are smaller, the gun laws are just as tough, if not tougher. And it doesn't look like anything's going to change with that anytime soon. Let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only the host of this podcast, but we're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, along with our AJC Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell. We think the Jolt sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia, it hasn't got nearly the attention of the DNC or the tragedies out of Tennessee and, and Kentucky in recent weeks, but it's an interesting political story happening in Georgia. We talked a lot about the demise of the school voucherville where we had 16 Republicans in the Georgia House break ranks with their fellow Republicans and vote against school vouchers. But one of the other pieces of that puzzle is one Democrat broke ranks with her own party and voted for that voucher measure. That's State Representative Misha Maynard. Um, she represents a very, very, very liberal area in Atlanta, one of the, one of the biggest blue strongholds in the state. 
Yet she's carved out a pretty unorthodox voting record. Uh, not only has she voted for the school voucher measure and was an, a vocal, outspoken uh, supporter of it. It wasn't like she just quietly voted and she went to the well. She passed out literature that a lot of people thought was offensive in support of it. She was out there in media talking about it. But she's also supported other GOP-backed policies, including what we call the DA oversight bill, the, the new push by Governor Kemp and his allies to give the state more oversight over local prosecutors. All this, though, has a consequence. Democrats are now rumbling about lining up a challenger against her next year. This is a very, very, very Democratic district, as I mentioned earlier. It's never easy to beat an incumbent. But this seems to me that it could be this big, um, the makings of this big proxy battle where we have a lot of GOP supporters and and, and what they call school choice supporters, voucher supporters, lining up behind Maynard and giving money to her re-election campaign while we have more traditional Democrats and public school advocates and others who worry about school voucher programs lining up against whoever they might recruit to go against her. So it's, it's something to watch very closely, Patricia. Yeah, there are a lot of pieces of this that I find really fascinating. Uh, First of all, Republicans could not be more relieved that there's finally a story in Georgia of the Democrats fighting amongst themselves (laughs) instead of Republicans and a Democrat being threatened with a primary by her own party instead of Republicans. Um, So just politically, that checks a nice box for them as well. Also, for um, conservatives who've been pushing this school voucher bill, they feel like it has really not just brought attention to their bill, which already there was attention, but to have even some imprint of bipartisan support has been huge for them. Also, the way that Representative Maynard has talked about this bill is very similar to the terms that they're using to talk about the bill. Um, she says that she she does represent those schools in that bottom 25 percentile of Um, of how they're performing. She said those are the exact kids who live in her district who need a bill like this. That kind of blows up the entire set of Democratic talking points that says this is a this is a bad bill. It's bad for public school. It's bad for kids. It's bad for families. So um, that is something that has been a big, a really legitimate boost to this um, to this effort for the people who are getting behind it. Um, Then in terms of Representative Maynard herself, She's not just going in and supporting republic just some certain Republican bills. She is supporting like the most despised Republican bills that Democrats have really lined themselves up against that they find really deeply offensive. And the prosecutor bill is a really good example of that as well. Um, But again, just as she's messaging about vouchers, when she's talking about this prosecutor bill, she's talking about her own experience, her own experience um, being the victim of a stalker and feeling like her district attorney, in this case, it was Fannie Willis's office, she felt like the DA's office was not open to her needs, didn't take her seriously. That DA's writ large, she, in her words, don't take seriously enough the reports and the dangers faced by victims of domestic violence. DA's would say the exact opposite, but for a Democrat to be on the House floor making that argument has really angered her fellow Democrats. Now, Representative Maynard may be slightly familiar to people um, because she wrote 
an op-ed for the AJC just after House Speaker David Ralston passed away. And it was something that we didn't expect. We didn't know that she would write an op-ed about him, but she wrote about the friendship she had developed with Ralston and the fact that she was already going up against her fellow Democrats as a freshman last session. And he reached out to her at one point and asked her to come meet with him in his office. And she she got the note, you know, that said, please come see the speaker. She's like, oh, great. Every literally everybody's mad at me <laughs> in this whole place. And she went there and he encouraged her and said, you know, as long as you feel like you're representing your district, you're doing the right thing. And so the op-ed was basically about how much that support from the Republican House Speaker meant to her and how it sort of steeled her going forward in the session. So she's just cut a very, very independent path. It has made her fellow Democrats incredibly angry, furious, looking for a primary opponent to oust her. But we haven't heard anybody surfacing yet. Yeah, it's been very vocal, though. You know, I mean, rarely do you see, <laughs> see such an effort taking, um, getting the, you know, oftentimes you'll hear quietly behind the scenes they're looking for a primary challenger. But this instance, you're literally having state lawmakers, State Senator Josh McLaurin, right? He's tweeting, find me someone, I'll write this check right now. You know, he took a picture of a check with, I think it was a thousand bucks or might have been even more. And he said, I'm just waiting for the name, right? Um, I've talked to many House Democrats who are saying they're actively looking for someone. One name that came up is a familiar name to those in Georgia politics, Abel Mabel Thomas, who a former state house member who used to hold much of that district, um, who has a name brand in the city of Atlanta. Uh, she's run for higher office before. That's why she ended up leaving that seat. Um, I asked her if she was interested in returning, just kind of seeing if seeing what the temperature was. And she said, no way. She said, she still has her eye on a U.S. House seat. So I don't, I don't even know what, what U.S. House seat that would be because they're all taken, but she has an eye on a U.S. House seat, so she does not expect to challenge uh, Misha Maynard. But my, my hunch is they'll find someone, and it's going to be uh, in, in, a, in a 2024 that will be dominated by, of course, the presidential election. That will be another one to watch very closely if she does get a primary challenge because it's going to be this big proxy fight over education policy. So stay tuned, folks. Okay. Absolutely. Now it's time for the Politically Georgia podcast hotline, which you can now dial into. You can leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Producer Shaney B is standing by. Boy, do we have some good ones this week. They're always good ones. Shani, what do, you, what do we have this week? Well, we got a couple of calls here. Let's start off with Michael in Athens, who's kind of wondering what happened to a very prominent political figure. What the heck ever happened to Herschel Walker? I went Google searching for him, and he's like disappeared from the face of the earth, it seems. It's a great question. <laughs> If you're in Athens and you haven't seen him, then nobody's seen him because we did used to see Herschel Walker popping up at Athens quite a bit uh, when he was running for Senate. Frankly, we don't know what has happened to Herschel Walker. The last I heard, he was still in Georgia um, following his defeat for Senate, uh, laying extremely low. No sightings that I've heard of. But also, I've certainly been checking in with uh, Texas sources as well, and no sightings in Texas either. He has been tweeting quite a bit, uh, tweets um, 
about college football, tweets occasionally about some issues, uh, not a lot about big time politics, not a lot about Donald Trump. But uh, Herschel Walker has been keeping an extremely, extremely low profile. So the short answer is we don't know where he is. Yeah. And, and we usually get texts like hey, of Herschel Walker sightings. We certainly did during the campaign trail when he would kind of do off the books events. Um, we have not heard from really anyone of that sphere, even the people who used to work for him, they can contact him, but they don't have a good grasp on where he is. And Patricia, I mean, look, even his social media feed has gone pretty dormant. He's tweeted, I'm looking at it right now. This is as of April 13th in the afternoon. He's tweeted three times in the last six weeks, um, just three tweets in March. And they were all kind of like, you know, what makes America different is our constitution and the bill of rights within the constitution. We must hold this true. I, I, I don't you just kind of, just kind of broad statements like that. So I, uh, I, I haven't heard much from him. There's still some coverage, of course, of his campaign, or the aftermath of his campaign. I should say, D- new details are still emerging about the dysfunction and and the campaign finance issues that his 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 operation had. Um, I will say, by I've texted him a few times. It's not like he was very forthcoming on the campaign trail. He never did do an interview with AJC. He never did an interview with most media outlets. Instead, sticking either to conservative outlets or very, very, very short statements on the campaign trail. Um, but I will say the other day, I was on my AirPods and I was trying to call my wife. And I said, hey, Siri, call my wife. And it accidentally dialed Herschel Walker's wife. I have no idea how. So <laughs> I looked at my phone in horror. I was like, why am I calling Julie Blanchard? So she did not pick up. <laughs> nor I did bet I, she did not. Nor did I expect her to pick up. Um, I don't think I was her favorite reporter. Um, but but that was that was about almost the closest. And I've texted her, you know, after the campaign as well. So it wasn't the only time I've contacted her, but that was certainly an accident. Um, but no, I I uh, I don't have a good pulse, a good beat on where they are right now. But I do know that if he was thinking about running again down in 2026, even though that's three years away, we would start seeing signs of that. Like we have been with Kelly Leffler, like we have been with Brian Kemp, you know, just the sort of rumblings that we've been tracking. And we have not heard any of that. So I'm not ruling it out by any means, but he has not taken any steps to keep his political operation alive. No. And you, and this is really different, not just from, uh, candidate Herschel Walker, but from private citizen Herschel Walker before he ran. Um, he was a constant presence on social media. He would update people on his workouts. He would update people on his dog Cheerio. Um, tons and tons of tweeting about Donald Trump. Uh, a lot of responses to whatever he had just seen on Fox News. And so this is just a really different, very deliberate strategy to keep a very, very low profile. He would be welcome with open arms back to Fox News if he wanted to say something, if he wanted to be a guest host, um, just about anything. You know, there are lots of quarters of conservative politics where he is still really well-liked and um, would be able to go back and speak. Um, We're also not seeing him on the private speaking tour. We're not seeing any evidence that he's out giving speeches, paid speeches, as he used to as well. So it's just a really, uh, he's he's, uh, gone dark for a while. We'll see what happens when he resurfaces. Yeah. So to answer Michael's question, if any of our listeners have any beat on where he is, let us know. We would love to try to catch up with Herschel Walker uh, now that the election is is months behind us. Jenny B, what else we got? 
Okay, next up is an email from Andrew. Andrew asks, any comments from Kemp or Carr on Mifepristone? Inquiring minds would love some intel on that. Great, great question. Um, so far, they've taken a pretty silent stance. I asked the governor's office for uh, an opinion on that, a statement on that. I was at an event with him and uh, Nada. I think they're taking the same stance, really, that they took the entire legislative session, which was, you know, hands-off approach in Georgia. Lawmakers are still waiting on the Supreme Court ruling, the state Supreme Court's ruling on whether or not Georgia's uh, abortion limits can go into effect. And when it came to Mifepristone, you have not heard an outpouring of support for the federal judge's ruling that seemed to put the fate of that pill in jeopardy. So we certainly we've seen a democratic backlash to that, Patricia, right? Uh, and I covered an event with the Health and Human Services Secretary who came down who said that the Biden administration will launch a vigorous defense of the ability for doctors to prescribe that pill and for women to use that pill. But Republicans have been more or less silent. Yeah, tons of Democratic backlash uh, to the point that all 50 Democratic members or people who caucus with the Democrats and um, more than 100 House members signed an amicus brief challenging uh, that legal opinion, uh, putting their opinion out there on the record to say that we think this is uh, politically motivated, that it's dangerous, that it's wrong. And Georgia's two senators and all of the Democratic delegation in the House signed on to that amicus brief. So they're taking really specific steps to put themselves on the record that they think this is just extremely dangerous and dangerous precedent to send as well if you can have a judicial rule of an FDA-approved drug that has been FDA approved for more than 20 years. Um, and I think because it has been FDA approved for more than 20 years, that's something that even Republicans are a bit wary to get into. Um, what kind of precedent are you setting if that is something that a judge can do? What other medications, what other choices can uh, judges make when it comes to medications, vaccines, et cetera, if this is um, left to stand as well? So I think they want to let this go through the court, see what happens, um, especially because it looks like it could go to the Supreme Court and then kind of decide how to proceed from there. And now, Patricia, for the final segment of the show... Who's up and who's down? We like to end on a positive note. So, Patricia, we'll start with the negative. Who's your who's down for the week? I think I can guess. Rick, I hope I'm not taking your answer, but are. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is down for the week. He was very, very sure, or at least outwardly extremely confident, that Atlanta would get the Democratic National Convention for 2024. It would have been a huge moment for him. It would have been a huge moment for Atlanta. Um, it's just not going to happen. At the same time, we're also starting to see more pushback to the Atlanta Police and Fire Safety Training Center. So it's, uh, you know, it's he's getting into the weeds of being a mayor. The honeymoon is over. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the pushback and the disappointments are coming. Um, he's still a very, you know, up and positive and high energy mayor. But, you know, the longer you're in office, the more these kinds of disappointments come and uh, act as a bit of a speed bump for your administration. So uh, Andre Dickens is who's down today. You know, Patricia, you sort of took mine, but I'll go a little broader. Just Georgia Democrats. You know, we, we don't use the word stunned lightly, um, but folks were stunned. You know, I was getting calls over the weekend and a couple of days earlier that it was nearing a done deal. I mean, folks are very, they weren't just optimistic. They were, they were confident. 
it was almost a near certainty. People were sure Atlanta was going to get the DNC seen as the front runner from the get go. City officials were not taking shots at Chicago or New York like you saw New York and Chicago taking shots at Atlanta. They were saying we got the target on the back because we're the front runners, we're the big boys in this in this race. Even though they're smaller than those other two cities, it felt like they were Joe Biden's sentimental favorite. Also, they were the strategic imperative, you know, for building a a, a deeper bench and a, a beachhead in the South. And then you just saw it all kind of go up, you know, within hours. I mean. From my personal view, I was getting calls Monday night saying, this thing is getting really close. Tuesday morning, this thing is getting really close. Tuesday, 10 a.m., it's gone. <laughs> you know, oh, going the oh, other way. Hurts. So uh, my who's down is going to be Georgia Democrats. They still feel like they'll play a, uh, you know, this Georgia's still going to be a battleground state in 2024. They'll still play a big role in the convention. I think there'll be a way for them to play a big role in the convention, but it will not be in their backyard. Patricia, who's your who's up? Okay, here is my non-conventional who's up. Are Democratic staffers in Georgia because it's a lot of work to host a party. If you've ever hosted a party at your home or at a venue, boy, that's a heavy lift. Um, And I talked to a bunch of staffers who were secretly like, ooh, we're going to have to get tickets for people. My boss is going to want a really awesome speaking role um, at the convention, in prime time, on the big night. You know, so there, there is just a lot um, that would have been perceived to be in their control, which was really would still not have been in their control that they would have been on the hook for. And so by it, by it being in Chicago, they can simply attend the convention, do their work there, and have a good time. Last party I hosted which was my wife's birthday. And it was not a heavy lift for me because all of her friends knew I was so bad at all this stuff. So they were just like, you know what? We'll take care of everything. Um, so I guess in that sense, they were the operatives. Yeah, you, you actually barely hosted that part. Yeah, right? I, just, I, just, I just showed up. Um, so my, my who's up is going to be Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. We're not sure the extent of his financial obligations, what, what he really promised in terms of how much money he would He'd be willing to spend out of his own pocket. But we know he has deep pockets and we know he's ready to use them. And we also know that Mayor Dickens said that was the number one single factor, the difference maker between the bids was that was that J.B. Pritzker, the billionaire governor of Illinois, is willing to bankroll this whole thing himself if it came to that. Um, but for me, being up there in Chicago, talking to national officials who felt the same way, by the way, I mean, I, I talked to a number of of, of national party officials and even some local Democrats in Chicago who did not think this bid were, was going to go their way. To me, it, that really showed the power of Pritzker. You know, I, I know that he's a force of, uh, he's a political force, of course, in the Midwest, but that was my first time kind of seeing it firsthand how, you know, his his sheer force of will <laughs> helped, helped steal this away from Atlanta. Um, when the whole story is told, there might be some other angles and there might be some other developments that come out over the next year or so. Um, But at least in the time being, it seems like he was the main factor. The main difference between Atlanta's bid and and Chicago's bid was J.B. Pritzker, uh, uh, you know, exerting his influence. Patricia, that is all the time we have for today's show. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC.
Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.